Well, good morning again. It's good to see everyone this morning. I see a lot of green in uh, the congregation today. That's certainly good. I was debating, should I wear a jersey today or not? Obviously, by the attire of half of our congregation, you've confirmed to me that I, I should have, uh, although, you know, obviously we're representing green. And by the way, I'll make mention uh, of this to those sitting on this side of the building. This is the sunny side of the building. So you may be getting a suntan on that side, but at any point, if the sun becomes too much, feel free to pull down the shades if you need a little bit more shade. But I will warn you, this second one trips people up sometimes. It's really tightly wound, and every few weeks it snaps back up during a service. So I'm just warning you. All right, you did great, Renee. Very good. That was very, very brave, very kind. So, uh, but yeah, I'm just noticing the sun pouring in. So if you get tired of that, give yourself shade. Feel free. Um, A technological advancement... So think about this with me for a second. A technological advancement that had a drastic change on our culture. Technological advancement that had a drastic change on our culture. There's probably a variety of things we could list with that. Maybe things like the internal combustion engine or uh, being able to wire a building with electricity and generate it that way. But I think there's a more recent one that's had a pretty noticeable difference or noticeable change on our culture. And that's this, the front-facing camera on a smartphone. Think about it for just a second. Uh, I, well, I, let's see, let's think back to when it, would, it probably would have been somewhere around 2011. You know how Facebook has memories, right? And it tells you your status from five years ago and six years ago and, and things like that. And it's always entertaining because I've been using Facebook now for about 10 years. And so a lot happens in 10 years that one of my favorite things to look at in the mornings is my Facebook memories. And I look through and see, hey, what was happening on my, in my life on this date eight years ago and nine years ago and 10 years ago? And it's always entertaining to, to read through and sometimes embarrassing to read through. And from time to time, you come across something and you're like, okay, I don't want that to exist anymore. So delete. And now I don't even have to remember that event. Um, but I posted something and I, I, this came up maybe a week or two ago in my feed. And it was from years ago. And, uh, and I, I had posted something at the time where I had said something to the effect of, hey, has anyone else noticed the trend of people posting a, like a self-taken image online constantly? Like, I didn't even know the word selfie yet, right? Selfie wasn't a, a word yet, I don't think. And I, I just noticed that, like, and in fact, like, I, I have one friend. Now, uh, she's not here. Uh, my wife and I are friends with somebody from <laughs> a different place in the world, um, where no matter what's going on in her life, she has to post a picture of her face. And it's like, and the one that really got me was when she's like at a, at a funeral and she's like wanted to post a picture of her sad face. It's like sad face, funeral, sad profile, sad from this angle. Look at all the degrees of sadness on my face. I want the world to see it right now. It's like, all right, we feel bad for you, but why are you posting a picture of your face? Uh, just tell us the family's name and we'll pray for them. But I, that's a pretty big change, wouldn't you say? Particularly, you know, in, in, in conjunction with social media that we all have, um, you have the opportunity, I have the opportunity, we all have the opportunity to cast out an image or to convey an image or a perspective that is like finely crafted right? Like we can put on a very public face that can be displayed far and wide, 
and it may or may not reflect what it, what's actually going on in our life. So we have this opportunity right now, more so than ever, using our front-facing ca- And by the way, I'm not criticizing every selfie ever taken. Just no more than one a day, okay? Three a week, that's the max. Three a week, all right? Three a week. Um, but, but the truth is, a lot of times we, we want the world to think one thing about us that may or may not actually be true about what's actually taking place in our heart and in our lives. And so that's a pretty drastic change because, you know, in this, it's not new in that that is like a new desire of the human heart, but what is new is that you and I have more and more opportunity to do that on a grander scale than I imagine any generation prior to us has had that opportunity. And I bring that up because the chapter we're talking about uh, from the book of Jeremiah today is all about selfies. Not literally. Some of you look at me really puzzled there. But in a sense, it is. So let's see. I might need you to work the clicker for me in the back. It doesn't seem to be connecting. Let me test it here. Nope, not working. All right. So it looks like you're on duty for today for me. Let me try one more time. Nope, it's all you. Um, So in Jeremiah chapter 7, we're going to be looking at the fact that this scripture talks about the fact that does our heart match the kind of image that we're trying to convey? So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Jeremiah chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verse 1 down to verse 15, and this is what it says in that passage. The word, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture today. 
And Lord, as we talk about this idea of the image that we convey matching with what's going on in our hearts, we pray, Lord, that by your grace that you would make this so. We pray, Lord, that that you would help us to be men and women who reflect the heart of your Son, Jesus Christ, in every context that you place us in. And we're grateful, Lord, for the things that you place in your word that remind us of that necessity. Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture, that you would just give us your insight and your wisdom, and that by your grace we would walk with you faithfully today. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that uh, most, if not all, people desire to live in an era, in a time, in a season when they experience good national leadership, at least at some point during the course of their lifetime. Jeremiah's lifetime, it, it spanned the reigns of several kings of Judah, but the events that are spoken of here in chapter 7 happen to take place during the reign of a godly king. So there was actually good leadership in Judah at the time that this was taking place. They had a godly king, his name was Josiah. And for a time, Josiah reigned as king in Judah, and his reign began at a very young age. I don't know who the youngest person in this room is. I'm looking around the room, and I see several young people here in this room. But Josiah became king of Judah when he was eight years old. He was eight years old. And then when he was 16 years old, he had a season, he had a moment where he decided, where he firmly decided in his own heart that he was going to be someone who became a fully devoted follower of the Lord. So at age 16, he becomes a fully devoted follower of the Lord. He really starts to take his faith very seriously. And the activity of his reign in Judah begins to display this. One of the things that he began to do in his 20s was he began to order that throughout the land where there were idols, that those idols be removed. And so those idols began to be removed. And then uh, later on in his 20s, he also ordered the remodeling of the temple in Jerusalem. And in the midst of that remodeling, as that remodeling was taking place, the Old Testament books of the law were rediscovered. And so as they're reading them and as they're looking at them, they're starting to realize, wait a second, there's a lot of things in here that we don't actually practice as a people. Maybe we ought to start putting these things into practice. And so they began obeying the Lord's teaching again as it was presented in uh, the Old Testament law, particularly in regard to things like holy days and things of that nature. And if you have the opportunity at some point, you could check out Second Chronicles chapter 35. But in Second Chronicles 35, it tells us about the completion of the work on the temple. So as they're remodeling it, they finally come to the spot where they complete it, and there's a celebration of the Passover that takes place there at the temple at the time. And you have the people very excited. Uh, the, there was a, just a, a big celebratory mood that came over all of the people. And if you were observing the nation of Judah at that time, if you were looking at these people from the southern kingdom of Israel, the nation of Judah, you would have looked at them and you would have said, all right, it looks like a great revival is taking place among these people. It looks like they're starting to take serious the things of God once again. It looks like the things of God that, that should have been mattering to them all along the way are starting to matter to them again. Culturally speaking, it looked like there was a genuine, renewed interest in walking with the Lord and that it was starting to take place on a very large scale. But there's a lot of things that we can make visibly apparent about us that may not match what's going on in our hearts 
And the Lord knew the hearts of the people. Just like in our context, He knows our hearts. He knows when we're telling the truth. He knows when we're living with integrity. And He also knows when we're faking. He knows when we're trying to craft an image that's, that's actually the opposite of what's taking place in our hearts. And it was into this kind of context that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and he begins speaking through him to address the distant hearts of the people that were being disguised by this outward display of, uh, you know, like this visible display of righteousness, but it wasn't matching what was going on in their hearts. And so as we ask the question today, the big question, you know, does my heart match the kind of image that I'm trying to convey? I think there's some sub-questions that the chapter we're looking at today invites us to ask. And one of those questions is this. Let me see. So was that me or you? Did it work? All right. We're back in business. Is there an area of my life that God wants amended? Is there an area of my life that God wants amended? Let me reread the first few verses here. It says this, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. Let me pause there and just say this, even before I finish reading what I want to read here. The people were celebratory. The people were jubilant. From all outside appearances, it looked like people were coming back to the Lord. And here, now, Jeremiah is being told to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim a message that exposes what's going on in people's hearts in the midst of their celebration. It's like the Super Bowl. Back in 2004, we had a party at our house, and a Patriots fan showed up. Can you imagine? Uninvited. And it's like a killjoy, right? And so here you have, yeah, so I know some of you are Patriots fans. That's fine. We love you just the same. Do we now, right? <laughs> Outward display of kindness. Secretly, we all mumble. But here you have, could you imagine being Jeremiah in that context, in the midst of all this celebration, in the midst of all this joy, in the midst of everybody celebrating the, the, like, the temple looking better than they've ever seen it look, and this outward display of religiosity from the people. And Jeremiah says, let me tell you what's really going on. That's what's happening as these verses are being described. Do you think Jeremiah was patted on the back very much during the course of his 42 years of ministry to the people of Judah? No, they hated him. They hated what he had to say, and they hated him. But anyway, it says this in verse 2, the Lord tells him, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who entered these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Let's pause there for just a second. It's interesting when the Lord reveals to us in the scriptures that he's spoken to and through different people. And I very much am curious about what that experience was like for Jeremiah when Jeremiah would receive a word from the Lord. Uh, there's probably been times in your life where you've experienced something like this. There's certainly been times in my life where I've experienced something where it's been clear to my mind and my heart that the Lord wanted me to say something particular, maybe to an individual or to a group of people. And so you try and be obedient to the Lord's leading and you say what the Lord has called you to say. But when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, I imagine that there must have been some sort of added layer to how the Lord was communicating these specific messages to and through Jeremiah, because very clearly, Jeremiah understood that the Lord was telling him 
that the hearts of the people were far from him, and he was supposed to say something very specific into that kind of context. They were going through the outward motions of worship, but internally they were not walking by faith in the Lord. So through Jeremiah, you have the Lord reaching out to the people and encouraging them to amend or to change their ways. And what he was doing here is he's he's inviting them to genuinely trust the Lord instead of trusting in the vain promises of the false prophets who had been living there and preaching there in the midst of the land and had been teaching the people that basically no calamity was ever going to come upon them because of the fact that the Lord's temple was located right there in their midst. So they're thinking, hey, we're exempt from chastisement or judgment or any issue of that nature because we have the Lord's temple right here in our midst. And the false prophets would go and would actually preach this and teach this to the people. And you have Jeremiah speaking into this as the Lord gives him the words to say. And he's saying, listen, the way he phrases it here, he's saying, do not trust in these deceptive words. He's talking about the deceptive words of the false prophets uh, that said, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He's saying, don't trust these false prophets that are telling you that because the temple is located here, that somehow you are exempt from actually being someone who walks by faith in the Lord. You're not exempt just because this building was built here. You're not exempt just because this edifice exists right here in your presence. Jeremiah was trying to encourage the people to return with their hearts, ultimately, to the Lord instead of living these duplicitous lives that they were living. Now, when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, it forces me to be introspective, and I actually want us all to be introspective when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, because I could say of myself, I don't want to be a duplicitous person. I don't want to be the kind of person that Jeremiah was addressing these things toward or against. And I'm certain that you don't want to be duplicitous people either. Because even though we profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, it would be a lie for us to try and pretend like the things of this world have no power to tempt us. Because the things of this world absolutely have the power to tempt me and have the power to tempt you. You and I both wrestle with all kinds of temptation. And I think it would be a big mistake for us to lie to one another and pretend like we don't. I think it'd be a big mistake for us to lie to ourselves and pretend like we don't. And I think sometimes in our weaker moments, we give in to the things of this world that tempt us. And I think at times we may even give the devil a foothold in our lives when our temptations start to become our addictions. But yet our desire is often what? We want to convey a picture-perfect image on the outside, while inside sometimes we're actually nurturing these secret idols or these secret areas of sin or temptation. And it's into that kind of activity that our Lord speaks. It's into that very thing that the Lord is speaking in this passage through Jeremiah to the people and by virtue of us reading this now to us as well. And just as he encouraged the people during Jeremiah's time, he's also encouraging us to be people who listen to his fatherly voice and amend our ways. To believe the good news of the gospel all over again. To stop giving idols a foothold in our minds or a foothold in our lives. And to experience the renewal and the refreshment that our, that our hearts crave, which ultimately can only be supplied by Jesus Christ. 
The Lord calls us to repent of our false beliefs because false beliefs ultimately lead to ungodly behavior, lead us far away from the Lord. And he's inviting us to trust in him again through Jesus Christ. That's God's calling on your life and that's God's calling on my life. And here in this portion of Scripture, it's wise for us, as we look at the things that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and through Jeremiah to the people, it's wise for us to ask the question introspectively as Jeremiah is preaching this message, is there an area of my life that the Lord wants amended? He's not just talking for people, for the benefit of people that lived 2,600 years ago. This is something that you and I have the privilege to wrestle with right now as well. Something else that this portion of Scripture invites us to ask is this. Do the deeds of my hands reflect the heart of Christ? Look at verses 5 to 7. It says this. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old, to your fathers forever. Let's pause there for just a second. In the very near future, so my wife and I are blessed with four kids, and they're all close in age. So in rapid succession, one at a time, each one of our children will become licensed drivers. And we're at that season right now where number one and number two in quick order, boom, boom. And then before you know it, number three and number four. You know, before you know it, we're going to have four licensed drivers among our children, and I know that they're very excited about that. I'm excited for them, obviously, with some fatherly caution. My wife is probably excited in a very remote kind of way based on her face right now. Um, but I mean, it's some, that is exciting. And I know for me, I can remember when I, when I first got a license, I, I, had a, I owned a car before I even had a license. My daughter followed in my path, too. She went and bought a car before she got her license. It's the stongy way right? You know you're eventually going to get it. You buy the car. Spent 800 bucks and bought an Oldsmobile. And I've, to this day, by the way, I've never had a more comfortable car than that Oldsmobile. It wasn't a good car, but it was comfy to just park somewhere and just sit in it, but not actually drive it, right? Because I remember I was 16 and I was driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and I was headed to a concert with one of my sisters and we were all excited. School was out. We were going to a concert. We thought this was going to be great. And on the turnpike, somewhere near Mount Pocono, all of a sudden, I noticed the temperature gauge started acting funny, and then I noticed a bunch of steam coming from under my hood, and then I noticed that my car didn't want to drive any further. And so I pulled over on the side of the road while all this steam was billowing out of the front of my car, and I popped the hood and I look, and stuff's gurgling out of the radiator, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh no, coolant, the antifreeze, it's all gurgling out, and I'm thinking... I just learned to drive a car. I don't know how to fix it yet. I'm like, what, like, what am I supposed to do with this thing? And I'm like, you're just supposed to get me to Harrisburg and not break on the turnpike. And this is before cell phones. And so the two of us are just sitting there. And I was like, well, let's just wait for this thing to cool down. And hopefully it cools down and we can continue the drive. I don't know. I'm like, what do you do when your car's blowing up? I'm not certain. I don't see fire though. And so we just waited a little bit, and I, I know, I'm sure people could see, you know, the, st- the cloud of steam rising from the vehicle and the hood up. And amazingly, in the midst of this, an elderly couple pulls over next to us and get out, gets out of the car. And uh, they walk up, and the elderly man, clearly sensing that I didn't know what I was doing, 
said, how, how you doing, young man? And I, I said, I'm, I'm doing all right. And uh, he said, looks like your car's having some issues. I was like, yeah, it's all, it's overheated. There's steam just gushing out. I, I've got coolant. I've got, you know, the, uh, the antifreeze just, just leaking out of my radiator everywhere. And he's like, one second. And he goes in his trunk. And this man must have been a Boy Scout because he pulls out a gallon of antifreeze and he gives it to me. And he's like, when it, wait till it cools down and see if this helps get you a little bit further down the road. And I offered him money, and he didn't want any money for it. He's like, no, no, just here. It's just a, a gift for you. We felt bad. He's like, are you sure you're going to be all right? He, he's, I was like, I, yeah, I think I'll be all right. I'll, I'll put this in. We'll see what happens. He's like, all right. So I waited for it to cool down. By the way, never take a radiator cap off while it's still gurgling. You will wear boiling fluid, all right? So I didn't do that. I, I knew not to do that. And so I waited for it to settle down, put a little in there, started the car up. It seemed to be working again. I'm like, all right, I think we're good. We moved down the road a little bit, same issue. And it starts, you know, just going hay, haywire and crazy. And I pull over again. I'm like, this is nuts. It was like, my car's obviously broken, this piece of junk. And, uh, and so we're on the side of the road again. And again, no cell phones, wondering, all right, what, what are we going to do here? And another family looking at us in our dilemma pulls over. And this was a younger family, and they had two young children, and they're in a minivan. And they asked us, you know, everything okay? And I, I told them, I was like, you know, we've tried. We're not going to be able to get this thing down the road. And he's like, do you want a ride to the next exit? The next exit was the Mount Pocono exit on the turnpike. Do you want a ride? And uh, I looked at my sister, and I was like, they seem honest. They got two little kids. I don't think they're about to, like, try and kidnap us. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so he gave us a ride to the next exit. And as we were driving to the exit, I saw the guy look at his wife, kind of like, you know, like they were thinking something. You know how, like, couples communicate without words, right? You develop, like, couple ESP. And I saw their ESP working between each other, and I was like, what's he about to say? And I, I could see he was, like, getting the courage up to say something. And I'm like, I wonder what it is. And he started sharing the gospel with us. And I was like, oh, and, and I, I let him speak for a little bit. And then I shared with him, I, I said, my, my uh, sister and I are actually, I said, we're believers too. And so I, I was relieved, though, that in God's providence, that he sent a family of believers to come and safely rescue us there on the turnpike. And he got us to the next exit. And then he and his family got out and they waited at the exit there uh, with us. There was a McDonald's there. And so I called my dad and told him what had happened, and he helped me through the next stages of what was going on. And that family stuck with us until they were convinced that all was well and that we were fine and taken care of. And I bring that up because that was a moment in my life where I needed somebody that I didn't know to show me true compassion. I was 16 years old, first time I had ever experienced something like that, out on the turnpike, really at the mercy of strangers, maybe unless a police officer came by, but at that point, none had. And I didn't have the ability to communicate to anyone, although maybe I could have made like steam signals with all the stuff coming off the front of my car and hope that, you know, someone I knew would have seen them. But the compassion of others really mattered. And by God's grace, we were able to safely get to the next exit. And when you look at a portion of scripture like what we're looking at here, it, it's one of those portions of scripture that encourages us to be people who are adept at showing compassion to others even people that you don't know. Exercising compassion toward others is part of God's calling on our lives as we seek to be people who follow Jesus Christ. It's actually one of the most visible areas of evidence 
that we truly do trust in Christ and seek to follow Him. We're called to reflect. We're called to mirror His compassionate heart. It's a calling of God on your life and my life if we trust in Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at this portion of Scripture through Jeremiah, the Lord was calling the people of the time to practice this, to practice justice, to show kindness toward transient foreigners, right? to look after widows, to look after fatherless children. Many of the people, keep in mind, at this particular period of time, considered themselves very outwardly religious people because they were doing certain things. And what they were doing was this. They were showing up at the temple, and they were celebrating the celebrations. They were celebrating the feasts now. They were celebrating, uh, you know, the holy days, right? Showing up and celebrating. That was the display of their religious life. But here's the truth. The Lord's not impressed by our ceremonies, and He's not impressed by our pageants. That does not impress the Lord. He's looking for changed hearts. He's looking for changed lives. He wants us to reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. He wants us to forsake our idols. He wants us to serve one another with compassion like He has graciously served us. As followers of Christ, a passage of Scripture like this should encourage us to ask ourselves the question, do the deeds of my hands reflect the compassionate heart of Jesus? Another question that I think comes up when we look at this portion of Scripture is this. Am I consistently walking in the light? Look at verses 8 to 10. It says this, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Something that the Lord's been teaching me during the the course of my life, during the course of the years that I've known Him, is to value the blessing of having genuine fellowship with Him. As I've come to know Him, what He's been doing, and I've been seeing Him do this more and more during the course of my life, is fostering a desire within me to know Him more and more on a deeper level than I knew Him before. And a very curious thing begins to happen within you when this starts to become the pattern of your life as the Lord fosters that sort of thing in your living. You become to be, or you start to become very aware of His presence with you in all circumstances. You start to be aware of the fact that He's not distant from you. He's right there in the midst of wherever you are. And He starts to move from the back of your mind to the forefront of your thinking. You begin to think about Him more. You become very aware of His presence. And it's particularly helpful that that's the case when you start to experience temptation to start living outside of His will. When you're mindful of the fact that He's right there with you, it becomes harder to give in to that temptation because He's not at a distance. He's right there with you. And you picture Him looking at you. And you picture Him walking with you. And you picture Him right there in your presence. And it robs you of a degree of temptation to go in a direction that's not in line with His will. Walking with Christ develops personal integrity. And He transitions you from walking in darkness to walking in light. I like what it says in the book of 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. to 7. It says, This is the message we have heard from, or excuse me, from Him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, in the same respect, it becomes evident that a person either has an immature faith or maybe even no faith at all when walking in the light of Christ is not a priority in their day-to-day life. If walking with Christ is not a priority, if walking in the light of Christ is not a priority in someone's day-to-day life, it's either evidence of a very immature faith or no faith at all. Strangely enough, this sort of thing, particularly as it's being spoken of here in this passage of Scripture, it gets illustrated frequently in stereotypical mob movies. You ever watch some stereotypical mob movies? What, else, what always seems to happen in a stereotypical mob movie? You have the mobsters murdering and committing adultery and, and uh, stealing and you know doing all these things. And then at some point in the movie, they go to the priest to be absolved of their sin in some way because they've got a murder at 7 p.m. that night and they want to make sure that things are taken care of beforehand. And then they go out and kill more people. And you look at that and it's like, how do they believe that that's the case? How do they think, can, it's like in your mind, every time I, ever, I see that in a movie, and maybe it's stereotypical, but there's probably some validity to that. I think, how can somebody think that you can just come before the Lord and say, Lord, magic potion me clean, and now I'll go out and kill some more people, but I will be back tomorrow and we will take care of that then. Does it work that way? Think if anyone really thinks that way, they ought to look at this portion of Scripture that we just read from the book of Jeremiah. Anyone actually believes that approach works. They need to look at this portion of Scripture. Because in this context, you have Jeremiah listing out, as the Lord reveals these things to his heart, he lists out the secret sins that the people of Judah were engaging in. They're engaging in murder. They were engaging in robbery. The Scripture tells us that they were being rather dishonest. So they they were lying, right? They were committing adultery. They were committing idolatry. These were the things that were actually taking place in their lives. These were the things taking place with the activities of their hands. These were the things that were taking place in the the inclinations of their hearts and their desires. But then they'd commit these things, they'd live in the midst of all of this, and then they'd go to the temple, and they'd engage in ceremonious acts there. And then, as the Scripture describes, they would declare themselves delivered, and then they'd rush back into the life of sin that they had embraced before. And they were continuing this pattern over and over and over and over again. Please tell me, that this is not a description of us as well. Jesus cautioned us that our hearts can drift in those very same directions. One of my favorite, favorite portions of Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. And a portion of that is found in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talked about the fact that a lot of times people look at the outward act and think that that is all that really matters. And he reveals that, no, he's looking at the heart. He's looking at what's going on on the inside. And he's saying both matter. It's not just the outward appearances. It's, what, it's what's going on on the inside. And the way he phrases it, let's look at uh, Matthew 5, 21 to 22, and then I'm going to jump to verse 27 and 28. But he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, 
And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now let me pause there. What's he saying? He's saying, yes, the activity of murder, obviously that's a sin. He's saying, if you're harboring anger in your heart, that's the step right before committing the physical act, because before you physically commit murder, you murder the person in your heart first. And he's saying, don't murder people in your heart, and then you're not going to have to worry about murdering people with your hands. He's saying the sin happens here first before it happens here. And then in verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's saying adultery, where does it happen first? Happens in the heart first before it happens outside the heart. And he's saying the heart matters. Where your heart is actually matters. And I bring that up because that's exactly what Jeremiah was bringing up as the Lord expressed this through him to the people of Judah. And I want us to be introspective because could it be that some of us are still trying to pretend with God and trying to pretend with one another? Could it be that sometimes we want to convey an image that's the exact opposite of what's actually taking place deep down? That's what this scripture is trying to address, and it's forcing us to ask ourselves those questions so that that's not a direction that we're going in. Now, if that is us, if that's any one of us, if that's something that we would say, yeah, you know what, that is true of me. I convey an image, but on the inside, my life is very different. The sins that I harbor in my mind and in my heart, the things that I nurture that I don't want anyone to know about are very different than the image that I'm trying to convey. What hope do we actually have if we're in a spot where we aren't truly walking in the light, what hope do we actually have? Well, the only hope we have is to fall on the mercy of Jesus Christ, to seek His cleansing, and to ask Him for the strength that He supplies to walk with Him daily. That's the only hope that you and I have. And every single one of us is in the same boat. And as Jeremiah was wrapping up this section here, there's one other thing that I think that we're invited to ask, and that's simply this. Am I trying to place my trust in something made by men? Or is my faith actually in the Lord himself who has the power to cleanse me? Look at verse 11 and the verses following as we finish up this morning. It says this, As this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So it became clear that the people of Judah thought of the Lord as basically their escape card. That it would allow them to go in whatever direction they wanted to go in with their lives without consequences. Basically, they had grown so used to being the recipients of God's blessings that they began taking them for granted. The Lord had established them as a nation. The Lord had performed miracles in their midst. He had raised up prophets for them and priests for them and kings for them. He had given them his word, and he had decreed that his temple be built right there in their midst. Was there ever a more blessed people than this group of people? 
But in time, the people of Jeremiah's day began thinking of themselves as special and probably unlikely to experience any form of divine discipline because of their lack of faith. They just didn't think it was going to happen. They just didn't think it was even likely. And instead of trusting in their creator, what ends up happening here is they began placing their faith in the temple, a temple that was meant to point them to the creator, not to be worshipped in and of itself. But they were effectively worshipping the temple instead of worshipping the Lord whom the temple was meant to be pointing their hearts toward. Now again, it's easy for me to pick on them and less easy for me to think about this from my own perspective. But can you think of any examples in our lives where we might be tempted to do the very same thing? You know, is our ultimate hope in something that's made by man or something we can craft with our own hands or, or something in, in just kind of like this physical world that's really not something permanent in nature, but we treat it as if it's permanent or we treat it like it has the capacity to cleanse our lives and cleanse our hearts and bring comfort and peace to us in some sort of lasting way? Is there anything made by man that we give the attributes of God to in our minds, that we think could actually be something worth living for apart from the Lord Himself, or something that can actually soothe us and cleanse us and, and, and make our lives the kind of lives that we ultimately hope that they would be. Do we trust the creation, or do we trust the Creator? And looking at a passage of Scripture like this, it becomes very, very evident that the Lord desires a consistency and a genuineness in our faith. He wants our hearts to match the image that we convey. He's not interested in a show. He's not interested in falsehood. He's not interested in pretense. He's not interested in us pretending. His desire is that we experience a genuine, real relationship with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the Lord's desire for you and for me. This world has enough fakers. This world has enough people who expertly work to craft a fake image and they hope that everybody buys into it. But Christ is not calling His church to just go through the motions for a few short decades. That's not His desire for us. He invites us to experience a real, transformative faith that results in a new heart, a changed life, and a new family, not just a new group of people to pretend in front of. He wants us to genuinely walk with Him by faith. It's the Lord's invitation to every single one of us that we receive the gift of salvation through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that our hearts are cleansed, that our hope is set on things above, and that ultimately we walk with Him in every context of life, not putting our faith in the things that we can craft with our own hands, but putting faith in the one who created us, the one who crafted us to be in his own image and who calls us unto himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together and meditate on it together today. Lord, we recognize that it's very easy for us to have this thought in our mind or this desire in our heart to convey an image that doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in our hearts. But Lord, you want us to be consistent through and through. You want to make us new creations in you. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would 
intervene in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would spark faith in our hearts where there is no faith. We pray, Lord, that you would mature our faith if we are still in this spot where there's a part of us that really just gives too much credence to walking in the darkness. Lord, you want us to walk in the light of Christ. You want us to walk with you. You want us to be highly conscious of your presence and to go about everything that takes place in our day-to-day lives in such a way that, that we recognize that you're right here with us. You're not off at a distance. Lord, we know that there are many people in this world who think of you as remote and maybe even disinterested in your creation. But Lord, we know for a fact that that is not the case. You are not remote. You are not disinterested. We look at your word that you've given to us. There's so many things, so many details that you have taken the time to reveal to us because you want us to ultimately walk with you. Lord, you could have chosen to keep yourself hidden from us. You chose not to do that. Your desire for us when you designed us is that we would glorify you and that we would enjoy you forever. Lord, we recognize that in this world, there are going to be plenty of opportunities for us to go in a different direction. There are going to be plenty of opportunities for us to value the things of this world more so than we value you. To think of you as just being far away, and not, not with us, not caring for us, not watching over us. But Lord, we pray that you would develop the kind of perspective within us that you speak about in portions of Scripture like this, where you want us to be mindful of what matters to you. So Lord, we rely on your strength. We all need the mercy that you have shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us of our sin. We pray, Lord, that by your grace that we would walk faithfully with you in every context of life, not being duplicitous people but having the the, the kind of integrity that only you can foster in an individual life. We can't muster that up. That's something that you build within a person, Lord. So we pray that you would build that within us. We pray that the, the mindset and the activities of our lives would be the same whether we're in darkness and by ourselves or whether we're in the light and in front of others. We pray, Lord, that we would be the same through and through and that you would be honored in our hearts, in our minds, in our faith, in our lives. So we're grateful, Lord, for all of these things, and we're grateful for the reminders that you've granted us from your word today. We commit ourselves to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.